A warning to our listeners. This episode contains descriptions of violence. Discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. Something to note, all of the groups covered on this show operate in secret. The details included in this episode are based on extensive research, but ultimately can never be 100% verified except by society members themselves. It was a bright morning in October 1860, and many in Naples, Italy, were desperate for a job. A long line of Neapolitans snaked down the cobblestones in front of the government offices. Suddenly, a man with scars on his face pushed to the head of the line. Though the unhappy crowd had been there for hours, no one said a word. The man's clothes, jewelry, and facial scars told them he was a member of the Camorra. In other words, he could go wherever he wanted. As the man pushed open the door to the office, a bureaucrat's annoyed voice rang out, Please wait your turn. The bureaucrat stopped himself mid-sentence. Then he waved away the unemployed Neapolitan woman at his desk. Once he and the Camarista were alone, the official politely asked, How can I help you, sir? The Camarista grinned. He said he had some friends who needed work, and he was wondering if the employment ministers could accommodate them. The bureaucrat nodded obligingly. He told the scarred man that his friends could start training with a customs official tomorrow. But the Camarista shook his head. He explained that his friends didn't need training. As long as their wages came every week, then they didn't even need to burden the customs official with their presence. The official hesitated. This man wanted his friends on the payroll for jobs they would never work. But he was a Camorra. Helpless, the bureaucrat muttered, Very well, they'll receive their first wages within the week. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Greg Polson. And this is Secret Societies, a ParCast original. Every Thursday, we examine history's most exclusive organizations from around the world and try to shine a light on these mysterious groups. From the Illuminati to the Order of the Nine Angles, we'll explore how much impact each secret society actually had on the world around them. This is our second episode on the Camorra a criminal organization which originated in the prisons of Naples, Italy. Last week, we explored the strange beginnings and brutal initiation rituals of the group. We learned about their improbable journey as they transformed from underground prisoners into respected members of Naples' police force. This week, we'll cover how the Camorra drastically overextended themselves when they meddled with Italy's newly unified government. Then we'll learn about their last days in power and what ultimately became of their members. We have all that and more coming up. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Moneymaker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. 
With more than 88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. In the summer of 1860, pro-Italian demonstrations filled the streets of Naples. Though the Bourbon regime had governed the city for centuries, they grew afraid as they watched their power slipping in real time. The impending arrival of General Giuseppe Garibaldi and his revolutionary forces only served to turn up the heat. Garibaldi was coming for Naples next, and the regime worried that their days were numbered. Things devolved further when the city's entire police force was scared off the streets by the mobs. Instead of acting decisively, the Bourbon regime charged one of their ministers with handling this issue. That minister was Liborio Romano, a statesman and former Italian patriot. To resolve the fallout from what had happened with the police, Romano made an odd decision. He put the Camorra in charge of policing the city. Romano claimed he gave the secret society the job so that they had the opportunity to redeem themselves. Whether this was true or not, the public accepted his explanation. Change was everywhere in Naples at the time, and the sentiment was that the Camorra should have the chance to remake themselves. But Romano's reasoning could have been a lie. One possible theory for his flexibility with the Camorra involves a secret society connection of his own. According to historian and author John Dickey, Romano was a Freemason. Freemasonry is an order focused on both secret ceremonial rituals and community-focused acts of charity. If Romano was a Freemason, then the secret society of the Camorra might have reminded him of his own group. Romano would have known about the society's rituals and codes. And while the Camorra's traditions were quite different from those of the Freemasons, Perhaps Romano thought he could mold the group into a more civic-minded society. Whatever his intentions, Romano was unsuccessful in changing the Camorra for the better. The minute he made them police officers, endowing them with the power of the state, the Camoristi began breaking the very laws they'd been hired to uphold. First, they used their status to broaden their extortion rings. It was already difficult for Neapolitans to avoid being shaken down by the Camoristi in the past, but now that the extortionists wore police uniforms, refusing their demands was impossible. Despite the increased funds, the Camorra wanted more, so they used their new powers to turn Naples' location on the Mediterranean into gold. 
Usually, when crates of clothes and spices arrived on the waterfront, customs officials would go through it and levy a tax on any imports. But when the Camorra were the ones receiving the import, officials weren't allowed to collect taxes. The Camorra even prevented them from inspecting the cargo itself. Their new powers made for a very profitable summer for the Camorra and a very ruinous summer for the government's customs revenue. But a bigger change was at hand when General Garibaldi arrived in Naples on September 7, 1860. Terrified, the Bourbon royal family fled their palace. This allowed Garibaldi to take temporary control over Naples without resorting to violence. Citizens paraded through the streets in celebration, and the Camorra held their breath, wondering what Garibaldi's rule would mean for them. They needn't have worried. While Garibaldi built a new government for the people of Naples, he allowed the Camorra to remain as police officers. This was in part due to Liborio Romano. At first, he was kept on as part of Garibaldi's cabinet, and despite the Camorra's many crimes, Romano still apparently viewed the society as reformed, so it only seemed natural to keep them on as officers of the law. Meanwhile, the Camorra continued masquerading as law-enforcing police officers, while gleefully extending their corruption behind the scenes. And as Garibaldi's government began restructuring Neapolitan politics, the Camorra discovered even more opportunities to enrich themselves. In the wake of Garibaldi's takeover, a coalition of politicians governed the Kingdom of Italy. They believed that the right to vote should only go to men who owned property, and so participation in politics became a privilege of the elite. Since the Camoristi sought to align themselves with people in power, the society's bosses realized that they should influence as many politicians and elite voters as they could. Politicians quickly realized that the Camorra had the power to sway elections their way. As a result, they started promising protections for the secret society in exchange for votes. It was a vow the society was happy to uphold. Sometimes Camoristi even doled out beatings to voters who didn't support their chosen candidates. This would be disruptive enough in any voting system, but the Camorra didn't stop there. When the society favored a member of parliament who they felt could be manipulated, they watched his every political move. If he did something they found threatening, such as making a speech that hinted he might crack down on their power, they followed him home. There, they whistled eerily outside his windows. This was their warning and it was all they had to do to remind their favored politician to stay in line. While tactics like these made the Camorra a force in Italian parliament, it also earned them an enormous amount of unwanted attention. That increased scrutiny would ultimately hinder their schemes. Up next, one man makes it his duty to stomp out the Camorra forever. Listeners, I have a surprising new treat for you. You know how you can find love in a bar or on an app? Why not a podcast? In Blind Dating, the new Spotify original from Parcast, we're expanding the places you can meet your match with a twist you'll never see coming. Every Wednesday, YouTuber and host Tara Michelle introduces one hopeful single to two strangers in a voice-only call. Through a series of illuminating games and questions, the trio finds all the sweetness and awkwardness of a first date, minus the distraction of appearances. 
But once our hopeful single chooses their match, the cameras are turned on, and it's either butterflies or goodbye. Blind Dating airs weekly, with new episodes every Wednesday. You can find and follow Blind Dating free on Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. In 1860, Naples transitioned into a unified Italy under General Garibaldi. Sensing an opening, the Camorra used the historic moment to their advantage, intimidating politicians and manipulating votes in their favor. But in doing so, they unwittingly garnered more scrutiny than ever before. Silvio Spaventa was the chief of police for the new government. On witnessing the Camorra's blatant abuse of their position, he fought back openly against the secret society. Like Romano, Spaventa was an Italian patriot who was once imprisoned by the Bourbons for his ideals. He too encountered the Camorra in the prison dungeons. But unlike Romano, Spaventa did not harbor any sympathy for Camoristi after his release. On the contrary, he absolutely hated them. Spaventa had a strong moral compass, and his ideals were inflexible when it came to the unscrupulous mob that openly manipulated politicians for personal gain. Furthermore, Spaventa was obsessed with figuring out where the Camorra actually came from. He refused to believe they had cropped up organically in Neapolitan prisons. So he sent his agents on a wild goose chase to locate the society's true origins. In this, Spaventa was misguided. The Camorra was a homegrown Italian secret society, and all of his theories tracing them back to Spain turned out to be false. Regardless, Spaventa was determined to rid Italy of this secret society that was, in his eyes, damaging the fatherland. And come the fall of 1860, he made it his mission to destroy the Camorra once and for all. On November 16, 1860, Salvatore de Crescenzo, one of the Camorra's primary bosses, was having an excellent day. The clothes he wanted from France had arrived in crates on the waterfront. In their police uniforms, his Camaristi pressured the customs inspectors to let the boxes go without so much as a glance inside. De Crescenzo was trying on one of his new French linen shirts when he suddenly heard a commotion downstairs. It sounded like a brawl in the courtyard. De Crescenzo looked outside his window. He immediately withdrew when he saw that men in uniforms were arresting his Camorra subordinates. The mob boss could hear his men protesting that they were the police around these parts, in uniform no less, but it did no good. All of De Crescenzo's men were rounded up and arrested. For a moment, De Crescenzo thought he had escaped capture. Then, someone slammed their fists on his apartment door. A muffled voice told him that he was under arrest. De Crescenzo didn't respond. He was too busy priming his rifle. Suddenly, his door was kicked down and National Guards swarmed into his apartment. Before De Crescenzo could raise his rifle, they surrounded him and repeated that he was under arrest, along with all the other crime bosses of the Camorra. As the officers began leading De Crescenzo out, he stopped them short, asking, to whom do I owe the honor of this needless arrest? The answer was quick, Silvio Spaventa. By the end of the night, it was clear that Spaventa had organized a coordinated mass arrest of many Camorra members. What's more, 
they had seized scores of cop uniforms and weapons. Over the next few days, De Crescenzo stewed in his cell. He vowed to get back at Spaventa, but first he needed to get out of jail. To that end, he sent word to his men on the outside. A few days later, on a foggy November evening, a group of Camaristi descended on the station where De Crescenzo and their other bosses were kept. Shouting and making threats, they tried to break down the doors of the station, to no avail. As the commotion rose, citizens stepped out of their homes to investigate. All of the scrutiny made the Camaristi feel exposed. Silvio Spaventa was still victorious, for now. So the imprisoned Camorra bosses decided to try a different approach. A few months after their failed jailbreak, on April 26, 1861, a mob pushed their way into the ministry building, which housed Silvio Spaventa's office. The angry crowd was largely made up of Camorra members disguised as regular citizens. They blew past the guards with shouts of, Death to Spaventa! Then they confronted the minister's secretaries, demanding to see him. But Spaventa had already escaped by a secret passage. The mob of Camaristi refused to leave empty-handed. Instead, they went to Spaventa's house and broke in. As citizens watched from the street below, a man appeared on Spaventa's balcony with a long, bloody knife in his hand. He shouted that he had just killed the minister with it. This wasn't true. Spaventa was long gone. The demonstration was nothing more than a florid piece of political theater. The next day, in an effort to show that he wasn't afraid, Spaventa went to a public lunch at a well-known Neapolitan cafe. Then he attended a production of Norma, an opera by Vincenzo Bellini. Spaventa sat in a visible place and left by the large main theater staircase, and no one laid a finger on him. It was his brand of a theatrical response. But the minister's victory in the war of public opinion wouldn't last. A few months later, a murder occurred in broad daylight on a Naples street. It was a revenge killing of a man named Ferdinando Mele, a Camorra police officer. He'd been stabbed in the head and left to die. Another Camaristi named Salvatore De Mata was apprehended. De Mata confessed that he killed Mele that same afternoon. The confession itself wasn't shocking. What De Mata had to say next, however, stunned the Neapolitan public. The murder mentioned that one of his associates was Silvio Spaventa. De Mata claimed Spaventa had given him a position in the local post office, but that he never showed up for the job, and yet he was paid a regular wage. What's more, De Mata had received this favor because he and his brother were Spaventa's personal bodyguards. This confession provided a clear and stark example of corruption from the supposedly incorruptible police commissioner, Spaventa. As a result, Spaventa was forced to resign in disgrace. And just like that, the Camorra's main foe had eliminated himself. Unfortunately for the society, their days were numbered. More enemies would arise from within the Neapolitan government, hunting the Camorra with a ferocity never seen before. In the early 1860s, one of the methods the new government employed was called enforced residence. 
This was a punitory practice that banished criminal offenders to offshore penal colonies without a trial. These prisoners were often members of the Camorra. In the eyes of the authorities, enforced residents would help to slowly rid Naples from the Camorra. However, the policy turned out to have the opposite effect. The Camorra was born in the dungeon prisons of Naples. Restricting them to a penal community simply played off of their original strength, allowing them to thrive. On their offshore islands, the Camorra invited even more members. And as those prisoners were released back into society, the ranks of Naples' Camoristi grew. Up next, a murder trial that garnered worldwide attention. Now, back to the story. In the 1860s, the Camorra were still a formidable force in Italian politics. So far, authorities in Naples had been unable to stop the powerful society. But they wouldn't give up trying. One of these methods they used was called enforced residence. Beginning in 1863, Camoristi prisoners were shipped off to islands and other remote parts of Italy where they could do no harm. Unfortunately, this only played to their strengths, allowing the Camorra to induct more members in prison before these same men were released back into Italian society. Meanwhile, a public backlash against the Camorra was brewing. By the time of the 1876 elections, the overall sentiment in Italy was that economic equality and organized crime were getting worse. As a result, Italy was taken over by more left-leaning politicians. These new government officials understood that they were expected to rein in the Camorra, and soon they came up with a plan. In September of the following year, Italian authorities orchestrated a coordinated arrest in one of Naples' major marketplaces. They rounded up 57 Camoristi in dramatic fashion. But the society survived, and their crimes in Naples continued. According to one politician at the time, not a single public works project could happen in the city without the Camorra's consent. That's how rooted in civic life they were. A change finally came at the turn of the century when the Camorra were involved in a bloody and sensational murder. On June 6, 1906, Maria Coutinelli, a former sex worker, was found stabbed to death in the Naples apartment she shared with her husband, Gennaro Cucolo. It was a brutal murder. Coutinelli had a total of 13 knife wounds all over her body. At first, the police suspected her husband was the perpetrator, but later that morning, they found his body 10 miles away. He, too, had been stabbed to death, and his head had been smashed with a club. Cucolo was already known by the police. He essentially ran his own burglary operation. And while he wasn't currently a Camarista, Cucolo was a known associate of the secret society. As a result, the police believed the Camorra had to be involved. Authorities tried for months to pin it on the society's boss at the time, Enrico Alfano, better known as Big Henry. But the police couldn't find anyone who would name Big Henry as an accomplice. The case went unsolved for nearly a year. Then, in early 1907, the Carabinieri, the military police, finally got a break when Gennaro Abatemaggio came forward with a confession. Abate Maggio was a Camarista, but over the years he had become disenchanted with the group's criminal practices, and he wanted out. 
What had pushed him to finally break his oath of silence was his involvement in the Cucolo double homicide. Abate Maggio said he'd been working as a sort of Camorra errand boy in the run-up to the murders. He was there when the Camoristi divided the loot taken from Cucolo, making him complicit. At which point Abate Maggio made the decision to become an informant, with hopes of earning a lighter sentence. Abate Maggio pointed to Big Henry as the man behind the Cucolo murders, and within weeks, the Camorra boss fled Naples. Reportedly, he jumped a ship to New York City by posing as a worker in the engine room. Meanwhile, Abate Maggio became a minor celebrity. No Camarista had publicly broken their oath before. Such a betrayal typically meant death. But Abate Maggio was in jail when he made his confession, and there he remained, protected by the police from his former comrades. Despite the confession, years passed before a trial for the double homicide got underway. There were a few reasons for this, but Italy's disorganized law enforcement was at the top of the list. At the time, Naples and the region around it had two different peacekeeping agencies. There was the conventional Neapolitan Police Department, and there were the Carabinieri, Italy's military police. The Carabinieri were supposed to keep peace and order in the countryside around Naples, while the Neapolitan police tended to cities and towns. But in reality, things weren't always so neatly divided. And given that this murder case had victims in two locations, one of which wasn't in Naples proper, both the police and the Carabinieri were involved. Things got messy as both agencies pursued different investigations without sharing evidence. The police, foiled repeatedly by the Carabinieri, had to restart their investigation more than once. For months, it seemed as though no one would build a convincing case. And then, the Italian authorities managed one significant victory. A few months after fleeing Italy, Enrico Alfano, or Big Henry, had settled into his new home in New York City. He was safe now in a little apartment at 108 Mulberry Street. On the night of April 17, 1907, Big Henry was resting at home. He didn't miss Naples at all. And it wasn't just because there were handcuffs waiting for him if he ever returned. He could see promise in the young Italians he was meeting in America. The Camorra might be dying out in Naples, but Big Henry really believed that the group could take root in New York City. He was startled a few hours later by a banging on his door. Through the window, he heard two officers from the NYPD say they were there to arrest any Italians who were rumored to have concealed weapons. Big Henry instinctively knew that this wasn't the typical shakedown of New York's Italian immigrants. No, the police were there for him. Their reason for breaking in was only an excuse. Desperate to elude capture, he burst out of bed and ran downstairs. But before he could escape, the door to his apartment splintered inwards. The authorities rushed Big Henry, making a quick arrest. American authorities immediately notified the Italian government. And thus, after only a few months in the New World, Big Henry was unceremoniously extradited. Two years later, Joseph Petrozino, his arresting officer, was assassinated in Palermo. Petrozino had been there to investigate a different criminal society known as the Black Hand on behalf of a secret branch of the New York City police. 
At the time of Petrozino's death, there was rampant speculation about his murderer's identity, but no one was ever arrested or charged. Regardless, it was believed that Big Henry might have had something to do with Petrozino's murder. This was never proven, but it was yet another twist in the years-long run-up to the Cucolo double homicide trial. Two years later, in March 1911, the trial began. It quickly became a subject of international interest. There were even articles chronicling its developments in the New York Times. Of the many salacious details, the public was mainly fascinated by the trial's jury. This was because it was difficult for the Italian court to find jurors willing to show up, given how scared everyday citizens were of the Camorra. They were right to be afraid. By that point, 34 Camoristi had been arrested in connection with the Cucolo murder. At the trial, every single one of them was placed inside a large iron cage that had been specifically welded to hold them. Across from that group of seasoned Camoristi sat Gennaro Abate Maggio, the informant. He was in a smaller iron cage of his own, purportedly for his own protection. From there, he held forth about his former secret society. Abate Maggio decried the Camorra's criminal actions, railing against their penchant for murdering and maiming people, often for petty amounts of money. He made it clear to the jury that he was ready to put his criminal past behind him. That's why he was testifying. He was recently married, and love had changed him. It gave him something else to live for. After making the case for himself as a sympathetic and motivated witness, Abate Maggio then went on to describe his knowledge of the Cucolo murders. This was the information the whole world had been waiting for. According to Abate Maggio, Big Henry was the driving force behind the slayings because of a complicated rivalry between other Camorra thieves and Cucolo. In collaboration with several other high-ranking Camoristi, Big Henry had planned and was responsible for the murders. For Big Henry, there had been only one thing to do. He ordered that Cucolo and his wife be killed. As Abate Maggio relayed these sordid details to the jury, Big Henry glared at him from his cage. After his confession, the defense tried to corner Abate Maggio during cross-examination. Unfortunately for them, he always responded quickly, never mixing up his facts. In fact, Abate Maggio was such a font of information that the defendants started calling him the gramophone as a pejorative nickname. When Abate Maggio finished, Big Henry took the stand. He spoke to the members of the jury calmly, telling them that he was merely a horse trader who was the victim of a carabinieri conspiracy. Despite these claims, Big Henry's testimony didn't sway the jury one way or another. On July 8, 1912, Big Henry and nine of his fellow defendants were found guilty of involvement in the Cucolo murders. In addition, all 23 remaining defendants were declared guilty of lesser crimes done on behalf of their Camorra bosses. Gennaro Abate Maggio, the turncoat, was hailed as a hero by the international press. His former compatriots, meanwhile, were vilified. Big Henry was imprisoned along with the other defendants, and with that the society began to break down. The Camorra was born in a prison and died in a courtroom. Abate Maggio, for his part, 
continued to seek adventure after the trial. Around 1916, he enlisted in Italy's armed forces as a private, then fought in World War I. He earned a promotion for bravery in 1917, an event which was reported internationally due to his already modest fame. Abate Maggio is even quoted as saying that he volunteered for the army in order to redeem himself, but his most dramatic statement of all was still to come. A decade later, in May 1927, after his marriage had fallen apart and he had embraced fascism, Abate Maggio made a shocking statement through a lawyer. He claimed his confession in the Cucolo trial was a lie, a ruse concocted with the Carabinieri to bring down the Camorra, and ever since, Abate Maggio had been filled with guilt. It isn't known whether this second confession was true, but if so, it meant that Big Henry had, in fact, been telling the truth during the trial. He had been framed by the Carabinieri. The uncertainty surrounding what actually happened forced the release of all the Camaristi who were imprisoned after the trial, including Big Henry. They had been in prison for 15 years. We can speculate endlessly about Abitamaggio's motivation in making this confession, despite the possible danger to himself, but we'll have to take him at his word. He simply felt guilty. In any case, the former mobster faded away from history shortly after his recantation. And yet, his initial confession continued to bear fruit. Even after their leader's release from prison, the Camorra never regained its former prominence. However, some of the group's criminal practices lived on in other organizations. After the trial, many Camorra members went to the United States, where they battled with other Italian criminal organizations on American soil. At some point, the surviving Camorra and their practices were absorbed by the American Mafia, which embraced their tactic of protection rackets. In other words, while the Camorra has largely faded away in Naples, organized crime around the world still features a ruthlessness that the group inspired. And given how the society was born, no one can promise it won't re-emerge. Thanks again for tuning in to Secret Societies. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Secret Societies and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Secret Societies, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Secret Societies on Spotify, just open the app and type Secret Societies in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Secret Societies was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Secret Societies was written by Nicholas Zwart, with writing assistance by Ali Wicker, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Hey listeners, don't forget to follow Blind Dating for a fun twist on a classic setup. YouTuber and host Tara Michelle can't wait to help hopeful singles meet their match. 
Search Blind Dating and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.